What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us as we continue our series called Illusions. If you've been following us over the last couple of weeks, you know that the definition that I've given for illusion is simply this, a false perception of reality. And the fact of the matter is we all contend with illusions at various points in our lives, primarily because of all the different ways that broken life and pain uh, affects us and impacts us, causes us to have some false perception of reality. But our faith, our faith in Jesus, as we engage with his word and as we get closer to him and closer to one another, gives us the power to expose and confront and unravel those illusions. That's what this series is about. So let's begin by reading chapter 3. Uh, we've, the last few weeks, we've just stayed, we've been working these first few chapters of Genesis, so I want to just stay right here. Listen to what the, what the writer says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not uh, eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. She goes on to say, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. As a matter of fact, God says, you must not eat it or even touch it. You do. You'll die. They go on with some more dialogue and persuasion takes place. And here's what the text says. The woman was convinced. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was there all along in this, a passive participant in this conversation, who was with her. See there? Who was with her. And he ate it too. There is the reading. If you've been tracking with us over the past couple of weeks, you know <clears throat> we've worked through in over two weekends three illusions that are prevalent, that sneaks up on us. The first one was simply... Uh, If my life was better, I would do better. Can somebody shout illusion alert? (laughs) The second two that we worked through last weekend started with the fact that uh, God's love is conditioned upon my performance and or my behavior. Can you shout illusion alert? (laughs) And then the last one was, okay, maybe God loves me, but I don't think I can trust God's love when I really, really mess up. Can somebody say illusion alert? Just type it in the chat, illusion alert. Yeah. Fact of the matter is, none of those things are true. If you missed the last couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to go back to our website. Make sure you catch those messages. Today, uh, the illusion that I want to tackle is really captured by one word, control. Can somebody shout control? Yes, control. We all deal with it. We all wrestle with it from time to time. And here's the Here's the technical definition for the word control. It's the power to influence or direct people's behavior or the course of events. And uh, the reality is all of us in some degree or another have some control. We have a degree of control. I call it partial control. Can you just simply shout partial control? Type that in the chat. Partial control. The challenge happens when there's a part of us, particularly in times of insecurity and uncertainty, uh, when there's a part of us that longs for complete control, complete control and domination, perhaps in our homes, complete control and domination, perhaps on our jobs, uh, complete control over the lives of relatives and friends, complete control, complete control. Here's how I want to frame 
uh, this particular illusion. All right? Simply, I want to frame it like this. Complete control over my life is a worthy and attainable goal. That's what oftentimes we find ourselves, if not saying, that's how we're acting. Because we're, we're often in pursuit, maybe not conscious of it, of complete control. We feel like if I can control it 100%, then I'm, I'm the safest. And I can guarantee the outcome. Well, here's the challenge with this. At the end of the day, there's no way possible for us to be in complete control in this broken, imperfect world. As a matter of fact, if the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us what an illusion it is, this notion of control, especially complete control. The world turned upside down, and it continues to turn upside down in ways that we cannot impact or influence, we, regardless of power, or money, a pedigree, a degree. It's an illusion. Can somebody shout, illusion? And yet, there's a part of us that still moves in that direction. So how do we deal with that? How do we engage with that? All right. It's, uh, let's, let's back into that uh, by revisiting the text. There's a conversation going on between the serpent who represents Satan and Adam, Eve, and Adam is passively there. He's beguiling. He's manipulative. Here's what he says. Did God really say to you that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He's exaggerating. He's basically making it important. I mean, come on. How much sense does that make? Eve responds and says, well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. She responds, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not supposed to eat. God actually says, don't eat from it. Don't touch it. If you do, you die. And then the dialogue begins to move back and forth between them. And here's what I like to argue. I had a mentor of mine, the late Dr. Fred Sampson, pastor in Detroit, Michigan, a fabulous preacher and pastor. He used to say often, he used to say, you know, when we sin and we do the wrong thing, the first thing we cry out is, the devil made me do it. He would always respond, the devil didn't make you do it. He just reminded you it was available. And I think that's what's going on in the text. The serpent is really reminding Eve and Adam of the kind of, of what they've been thinking on their own. You know, moving around back and forth throughout the garden, coming back, looking at the tree, they're looking at it, say, man, this, is, this tree looks normal, it looks natural, it looks n- nothing different than the other trees. How come? It doesn't make any sense why we can't touch this tree. And yet that tree represented the one space in the garden that they had no control of if, in fact, they were to be obedient to God. They had control over everything else, though, guys. They had, they had full access to the entire garden. They, Adam got to name the animals. I mean, that's a lot of control. I took parchment. That's a lot of control. That's a lot of power. They had full access. They could enjoy and experience the beauty and the fruit with one exception. And that was the one thing they fixated on, I need to get. Because that would give them complete control. Wow. But that was the one thing they should not have been controlling. So here's the question I'd like for you to wrestle with. Where am I trying to control what's not mine to control? Where am I trying to control what's not mine to control? All right. 
So how do we deal with this struggle of illusion and kind of working through it, okay? Let me suggest there's some truths that rise up out of the text. Let's go back to Genesis 2. Here's the original statement that God lays down as he draws these boundaries. Listen to what God says. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree. Can you shout every tree? Go ahead and type in the chat. Every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you'll surely die. You'll introduce death into your reality. All right. So the first thing that we've got to discipline ourselves as we wrestle with this notion of trying to control more than what we ought to be controlling is that we have to learn how to acknowledge uh, our own limitations. The fact of the matter is it doesn't matter how much power or money we have, how good or cute or handsome or charismatic we might think we are, there are just some things that we cannot affect or change. There are some, you know, you know there, are some, there, are some, there are some people that, um, that we can't help. And sometimes they live in our own homes. Uh, there are, some, there are some, some circumstances that we cannot change. Death is a perfect example. I often tell people that when we lose a loved one, we have to deal with it one hour, one day, one moment at a time. And a huge part of that is really coming to terms with the fact that we can't change death. We accept it. There are just some things we cannot fix. doesn't matter how many resources we have. You know... Uh, as I as I as I, uh, I think about this notion, uh, I'm reminded of a few weekends ago at NBCC. Our staff we got together. We did a full day retreat, and we looked at the the journey through over the last two years of the pandemic. And we were shocked and surprised by some of the things that God, some of the gifts we discovered along the way as we worked through the pandemic. Here's one example. You know, we were preparing to launch a second campus in San Jose. We're trying to figure out how to, how, to, how to beam, in a sense, my preaching, where I would be preaching live in Ridwood City, into our congregation in San Jose. And we did tons of work, lots of money. Then all of a sudden, the pandemic broke loose, and suddenly the, the, the crowds disappeared. Everybody was shut in. And I found myself teaching and preaching to an empty auditorium, talking to a camera like I'm doing right now. And to our surprise, as we acknowledge what we could not change, we could not change the dynamics of the pandemic. We could not change the dynamics of the COVID. But what I said to my team at the very beginning, we can choose to look at our limitations as obstacles or we can choose to look at our limitations as an opportunity. And so our team leaned in. And so we decided that we were going to do the best, come on, online gathering that we could. And in the midst of that, our online ministry, what you're looking at, listening to right now, was born. And while I'm, I'm talking right now to an empty sanctuary here, I'm looking to a camera and I'm talking to countless numbers of you across the bay, across the country, and across the world. Because rather than being fixated on what we couldn't change, come on now, we found God in the inside of the limitations where we were. Acknowledging what you can't change allows you to find God within the limitations where you are. 
and you'll find that he still is a God able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask, think, or even imagine, even within the things you can't change. Come on now. Praise God. So, number two, we wrestle with control. The second thing we have to do is recognize the power that we do have and use it wisely. I like to say, use it with integrity. Notice what the text says. You know, Eve said, look, God says, when we, if we eat from the tree, we die. The serpent's response was, you won't die, he replied. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. And check it out. You will be like God. That's, that's the key. Highlight that. You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. In other words, first of all, you'll be like God, so you won't need God anymore in your life. Always be careful about your pursuit of absolute control. Because if you ever achieve absolute control, what that ultimately means is that there is no place in your life for the power and the providence of God. And that will leave you, come on now, at the mercy of the imperfections of your humanity. That's a bad place to be. So you'll be like God. You don't need God. You can be God of your own life. You'll be in charge. You don't need him telling you what you can't do, especially when it doesn't make any sense. One more insight that I want to make, and then I'm, I'm going to give you two quick things. We'll move to the next point. You've got to understand that whenever you deal with God, there's always going to be a knowledge gap. You see, the, you see, the fact is, uh, the difference between God and you is that God is the creator and you're the created. And so God is always going to know more about reality and the nuances of reality than you and I will ever, ever, ever know. You know, Paul says, for now we see in part, we prophesy in part, we know in part. It's only when that which is perfect has come, when we're standing face to face, will we know even as we are known. So listen, stop judging God based on the knowledge gap. We've got to learn to trust him even when we don't understand. You know, that's tough in the 21st century because we have such confidence in our own intellectual ability. But there will always be a knowledge gap. All right. Can you shout like God? This is what I want. Here's the point. What Adam and Eve did not realize is, see, he defined it. He says, you'll be like God because you'll have, the, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. They already had it. The moment God put in place that tree, he gave them the power of choice. And when he gave them the power of choice, he placed within their hands the power to create, the knowledge to create good and evil. They already what they didn't have was God's character. You see, in order for God to create free choice for them, God had to impose limits on his own power. He had to, he had to impose limits on his own control. He had to say, I will, I'm creating a no control zone. Come on now. I'm creating space and you can make whatever choices you want. You can follow me. You cannot. You can trust me. You cannot. But with those choices, I'm giving you the freedom of choices. But I'm also going to give you the consequences that come with those choices. The two are tied together. The question for you and for me as we try to model ourselves and learn from God, and 
Do we have the character to impose limits on our own power as an act of love? Can we do that in our home? Can we do it in our job? Listen, next weekend is going to be the 4th of July. Last weekend, Juneteenth Day, I got a text from one of our partners here at NBCC. said, can you reflect on the meaning of Juneteenth? And I won't go into all that I said, but what I started, I started a text with these, these words. The three most important words in America's history and its founding documents found right there in the preamble, simply we the people. The whole of America hinge on those words. We the people, this notion of, 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 of shared consent. Now, I, I, I shout that out because there are two debates going on I just want to call out as I'm talking about a God who imposes Limits on his own power as an act of love to create space for others. One debate in this country is a debate that says it's about rights. And it says that you simply want the same rights that I have. And if the two of us show up in, in, front, in, in court, we want to have equal standing under the law. That continues to expand this notion of we the people. Because we're always asking who's the we and who's the people in America. And we keep expanding that notion. That's a good thing. There's another debate going on in this country. It is also about right, I, I, rights. And I'm calling this out because I want you to be able to figure out which debate you are in if you happen to get engaged in, this, in these debates. And I want to keep reflecting on this notion of a God who imposes limits on himself as an act of love in the garden. Come on now, to create freedom of choice for us. The second discussion that's going on is, is about rights. But it's like this. It essentially says, my right is preeminent. That I only care about my right. It, this is happening on the far right, and it's also happening on the far left, right? I can give you examples on both extremes of how there are people saying, the only thing that matters is my right. Nobody else is right. Essentially what that suggests is that the me as an individual or the me as a group is becoming more powerful and more domineering and more controlling than the we. And once that happens, America's future is threatened. Forget the government. You can find this happening in some people's houses. Some of y'all listening to me, this is going on in your house. You understand that, that, that there is a we called the family. But when one person in the family becomes all-consuming and everything has to revolve around that, how the money is spent, come on, drives the decision, everything is focused on that one person. You've just created an environment of abuse and and trauma, and, and, and the garden of addiction, all takes place there. All takes place there. There's a reason why the psalmist says, how good it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. He says it's as though the, the, the anointing oil starts at the top of Aaron's beard and flows down. He says it's like the dew on the Mount of Hermon and it flows down the holy mountain. And he says, and there, come on now, in the place of unity, God commands his blessing. And the only way that unity works in a house or in a country is that people have to discipline themselves to impose limits on their own power, their own control. How good are you at imposing limits 
on yourself. How you spend your money. The space you create for your kids to have some decision-making ability. How good are you at imposing limits on yourself? Don't just long for God's power. See, power without character runs the risk of becoming demonic. We need power plus character. What I like about God, and I'll leave, we'll move to point three in just a second, is that God restrains himself so that people can have free choice, but he also restrains himself in the face of the consequences that flows from those choices. So I know that God has been weeping, you know, as we've watched violence and racism and all kinds of, and the explosion of even COVID itself, when so often God has placed within our hands the power to make a variety of choices and we make the wrong choices and then we say, where are you, God? But God says, look, the choices, I got to let you have the consequences. It's not about God, it's about us. Wow. So number one, we've got to honor the limitations. We've got to know what they are. Two, we've got to be good stewards of the power that we have. Three, we've got to know the difference. You see, I often have control over inputs, but not control over outcomes. The difference between input and outcome. Here it is in the text. Let me just demonstrate it real quickly. When you read through chapter two, you'll notice God is pouring his love and pouring himself into both Adam and Eve, literally, and into shaping the environment around him. He's pouring himself out. He's got f- complete and full control over the input. And verse seven says he, he breathes into Adam. He becomes a living soul. I'm sure the same thing happens for Eve. Verse eight, it says he plants the garden. He's personally involved. And he's personally involved as he creates this incredible environment of blessings. He's poured himself into shaping this environment. And yet, the outcome, what Adam and Eve, what they do with what he has poured into them, with the love, with with the care, with the resources, what they do with it, it's on them. He creates space for them to decide for themselves. You see, a lot of the stuff that's keeping us up at night is we're trying to focus on the outcome when we really need to be focused on the input. You know, you may not be able to determine what happens in terms of the outcome at your job, but you can focus on the input. You can make sure that you're always bringing your best, that you're always bringing your best imagination, your best ideals, that you're putting your best work forward. You focus on the input. Don't worry. You can't control the outcome. That's not yours often to control, Right? You focus on the input, how, how you, what kind of food you put in your body, what kind of rest you put in your body, you, you, what kind of, how you exercise. You've got to trust God with the, with the outcome. We've got to shift our focus from trying to control outcomes to really focus on the input. Wow. Now, let me just see, can I help a set of grandparents and some parents who's watching me right now? You know, here's the deal. I told this to a friend of mine the other day. The fact of the matter is that when God created Adam and Eve, he made them perfect. They had no history of trauma. He placed them in the garden of delight. That's what Eden means, delight. Come on. It's a well-resourced environment. Everything they could have ever asked for, imagined, he put it there in front of them. They, couldn't, they, 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 they had a, a, a parent who did not abuse them. He did not abuse them. Rather, he gave them his undivided attention. And here we have 
a, a parent who's got, who, who, who created perfect kids, put them in a perfect environment. Come on. No history of trauma, well-resourced environment, everything they could have imagined with a perfect parent. God himself is perfect with his perfectly undivided attention. And with all of that, God could not keep them from messing up, from going astray, from making the wrong choices. Despite his input, come on now, the outcome was up to them. So if that's true for God, what do you think as an imperfect parent bringing into the world imperfect kids born in sin, shaped in iniquity with, with, with histories of trauma and perhaps poverty and other kinds of things that are going on in a not so always well-resourced environment? Come on now, you're imperfect trying to figure out life yourself. What makes you think that you ought to somehow, in the midst of those conditions, be able to raise perfect kids? That somehow you should be able to keep your kids from doing what God couldn't keep his kids from doing. You, you see the point here? Follow God's lead. Focus on the input. You got to trust God as it relates to the outcomes. You can't control the outcome. It's not your responsibility to control the outcome. It just isn't. Wow. Here's number four. We'll wrap it up. Hope you're catching this. We wrestle through this notion of control. We're just learning from God, right? Yes. Number one, you, you resp- uh, be aware, know what your limitations are, and look for God inside. Come on. Number two. Be a good steward of the power that God has given you and make sure it lines up with your integrity. How you use power reveals everything about your character. Three, come on. Focus on input, not outcome. And lastly, be clear about the rules and consequences. That's what you're really reading here in the text, guys. You know, that's what Eve repeats. That's what Godly says. says, listen. You have the freedom to choose. I'm telling you, don't eat from this tree. Now you've got choice. If you do, you're going to introduce death into your reality. I'm clear about the choices and the consequences. I'm, I, I'm speaking to somebody now who's in a codependent relationship. You're, 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 you're trying to fix some, someone who's living out an addiction, right? You, you keep giving them money, you keep giving them money, expecting that somehow they're going to change. I, I'm talking to you. You can be clear about choices and consequences. God says, I'm not going to be codependent. You mess up. Come on now. And here's what God does. He literally puts Adam and Eve out of the garden, puts an angel there. Come on. And stands guard and protects the tree of life in the garden. And now they're out dealing with the harshness of the consequences of their choices, not because he's mean, not because he wants to destroy them, but because this is the beginning of his plan of redemption for their lives, that their hope relies in their ability to confront the consequences of life themselves. And yet, he does not abandon them. You know, the other day I heard a story on uh, Dr. Phil about a mother who worked two jobs to put her kids through high school. They 
They did everything to mess that up. She negotiated with principals and teachers to make sure that they got clear of that. And, um, and then they went to junior college. She got them there, and they went and messed that up. They refused to work. They refused to do anything. And yet they lived in our house. And Dr. Phil was inquiring about this. How, how could she do this? You know, I don't actually remember what she said, but I, I, I have dealt with a number of this over 30 years of pastoring, and I suspect that what she, I suspect her thinking was, you know, I'm trying to keep them alive. If I open the door and let them, if I put them out, they, 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 may, they, may, they may end up in jail. They may end up dead. And, and if I can just keep them a, a, a nice bed for them to lay in, then, you know, then, then they can go ahead and, and be irresponsible and all that stuff. But at least I can protect them. Can somebody shout illusion alert? Illusion alert. What she has to do, what she had to do was find the strength, guys, to open the door and say, you're on your own allow them to live out the consequences of their challenge and trust that God would be there in the details at the end of the day. And listen, it does not always work out the way we want them to work out. Surely Adam and Eve did not work out the way God would wanted them to work out. Come on now. But if, 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 if God can fix it, it can't be fixed. If God can't deliver, it can't be delivered. If God can't heal, it cannot be healed. Put it in his hand. And what I like about how this story ends, come on now, that, that, that God puts them out of the garden but he makes note of the tree of life. He says, I'm going to preserve the tree of life. It is to say that I preserve the right. They're going to do whatever they want to do. I'm going to work my redemption. And at the end of it all, come on now, I'm going to still have the last word. And when you turn to the last chapter in Revelation, you stumble across the writer says, come on now, in the, in the new garden of Eden, in the new creation in the, that came forth. He says that there's a, there's a tree of life is on both sides of the river and the leaves from that tree is available for the healing of the nation. And it's just simply the way the writer says is that, is that God has created this experience, but he never gives up on us. And he has somehow reserved the right through the birth and death and resurrection of his son to break even the power of death and ultimate sin itself. So don't try to be God. Let God be God. Let him have the ultimate last word. And you just be a good steward of what God has placed in your hands. Amen and amen. You know, Scripture says to all of us, don't just be hearers of the word of God, but be doers. You know why it says that? Because transformation and change happens not simply by intellectual awareness, but by action. And action starts with a commitment. So I want to encourage you, invite you, scan the QR code right here on the screen, and let's take a step of commitment together. For somebody, your step is to simply confirm Maybe for the first time or in a renewed fashion, your faith to follow Jesus, to be a Jesus follower. There's an option there for you to do that. And if you'd like for us to follow up with you, reach out to you and help you to figure out your next steps beyond your commitment today, uh, check where it's indicated and we will reach out to you wherever you are in the world. And here's a reflection question I really want all of us to wrestle with. You may want to take a picture of it so you can just walk with this through out the course of this week, where am I trying to control 
what's not mine to control. God wants to, to create some liberty for you in that area. All right, make sure you're back here next week, 4th of July weekend. Come on now, don't, don't, don't miss that weekend. Hang out with us. We'll be right here at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific time as we normally are. And if you're in the local bear, please check out our in-person gatherings, either in uh, San Jose or in Ridwood City area. We would love to host you.